Byzantium and friends, I am Anthony, your host. In the first two centuries of its existence, the city of Constantinople witnessed phenomenal growth. It was built on the site of the ancient city of Byzantium, whose population may have been around 20, 25,000. And within two centuries, um, you know, before the Justinianic plague in 541, the population of Constantinople was about half a million. Now, the demographic aspects of that expansion have not been studied much, but we know a lot about the monuments that were built, from the palace and the hippodrome to the boulevards and the colonnades and statue collections and the churches and so forth, the imperial fora with the columns, the walls. We have building regulations that talk about multi-story apartment buildings. There's a law by the Emperor Zeno in the later 5th century, which was written in Greek because he acknowledged that the population of the city understood that language more than than Latin in which imperial law was usually issued. And the law codifies such rights as a view to the sea. Uh, You are not allowed to block your neighbor's view of it. By the way, I'm back on the Corinthian Gulf again. I'm actually looking at the sea right now, and you can probably hear the cicadas in the background. That's not a microphone buzz. So anyway, after the mid-6th century, the city enters this demographic decline. There was a plague. There there were food shortages, the inability of the imperial government to sustain such a massive urban population. In the early 7th century, when the Persians and then the Arabs conquered Egypt, which was the main source of the grain, the people just literally had to leave because the emperors could not provide enough grain for such a large population. And it's estimated that by the end of the 7th century, say around 700, the population of Constantinople may have fell to about 100,000 and possibly even less. Some scholars estimate 40,000. And it's worth thinking about that moment. It means that one out of every five dwellings, houses or manors or palaces or apartment buildings or neighborhoods, one out of every five was occupied. The rest were either abandoned or in ruins. That's logically what that means. This was a city of ghosts. Right. The majority of the built environment was abandoned or in ruins. It would have been the perfect moment to study the city. <laughs> like if you could be like an architectural historian or an archaeologist and you picked a moment where you could study, you know, an ancient imperial capital with the fewest, with the least amount of intervention in people's lives, even without having to excavate, because most of it would have been, you know, lying around on the ground. That would be the moment, right? Fewest number of people, the, the maximum number of surviving buildings that are just there available for you to study. The situation today is obviously exactly the opposite. Istanbul today has over 15 million inhabitants. The city has expanded well outside the boundaries of the Byzantine capital, uh, outside the walls, um, and the surviving monuments of Byzantine Constantinople are, they're few, 
they're not in very good shape. They're sometimes hard to find. They're sometimes lying underneath uh, subsequent buildings or built into them uh, or are in their basements uh, or whatever. Now, a long history of urban overhaul and rebuilding and destructions and fires and wars and sieges and so forth fills up the period between 700 and today, obviously, and changes of regime and changes of the dominant religion and the dominant dynasties and so forth. This makes it all the more difficult and all the more important to have reliable and accessible user-friendly guides to what survives of Byzantine Constantinople. And the odd thing is that we haven't had such a thing, um, at least not in English, uh, in, in, in a very long time. There is a technical, like archaeological literature, and there are also some kind of quasi-encyclopedias of the city's Byzantine monuments in, in German and in French and Spanish, but we actually haven't had one in English. So I was thrilled when the book that we will be discussing today was published, uh, and I thought it would be a great idea to have a two-part series uh, with a guest who could speak on the politics of the material past. So, this was our previous episode with Jonathan Hall, and to complement it with a book that looks at the material remains of Byzantine Constantinople in Istanbul today. So picking out the Byzantine remains from the many, many layers of history that the city has. My guest today is Sergei Ivanov, who is Alexander von Humboldt Fellow at the University of Munich and a corresponding member of the British Academy. He has written many studies about Byzantine culture and Byzantine history, and I'll pick out two topics um, that on which he's written sort of the fundamental reference monographs, uh, which is the history of holy fools, so the tradition of saints who are called holy fools in, in Byzantium and early Rus and Russia, and also the history and cultural politics of Byzantine missions. That is the degree to which Byzantine authorities, state and church, were interested in converting foreign people. But the book that we will be discussing today is called In Search of Constantinople, a guidebook through Byzantine Istanbul and its surroundings, which has been translated by the Russian and published in Istanbul by the Swedish Research Institute there. So if you're traveling to Istanbul in the near future and you, you want to pick up a book that will take you through the, the physical history of the monuments and also the, the events and textual sources that pertain to them, arranged according to routes that you can take in order to see them in the most efficient way, uh, this is the book. Again, many thanks to Medievalists.net for reposting these episodes. And straight now to my conversation with Sergey. Sergey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I read your very interesting book. It took me back to some summers that I had spent in Istanbul. And so let me start with a personal question, uh, which is sort of important when you know explaining why we decide to write the books that we do. So do you have a personal emotional connection to the city and what sorts of things do you most associate with it in your sort of personal experience? Well, I came to 
to Istanbul for the first time in 1993, and I was right away captivated by the notion of, uh, well, Atlantis, a Byzantine Atlantis drowned and somehow shimmering faintly through the mist of time. Uh, By then, uh, in the mid-90s, I was writing my first monograph on Holy Fools. So, of course, um, the life of Andrew the Fool was of extreme importance for me. And when I came to Chamberlitash, to the well column of Constantine the Great, I immediately recollected um, the prophecy which Andrew the Fool uh, gave in the 10th century, that Constantinople will be flooded by the sea, he said, and only the column on the forum will survive for, for ships uh, to tie mm-hmm. ropes to, and sailors will weep, saying that war are we, for our great city has been swallowed by the abyss. So, and this is this was my, my impression that uh, the column is indeed, uh, rises majestically, uh, towering over the sea of alien life, mm, swirling around its base. Um, and this, this impression has always a grip over me when I when I am in Constantinople that I'm I'm looking at the well at the um, at the mountains which are sticking up from the sea right, of right. of oblivion. Uh, this is why this is why it was so so impre- impressive for me. So um, the the idea for, for this guide was born out of my feeling that I call in myself historical sentimentalism. I'm deeply stirred (laughs) by the thought of some, well, you know, past event occurring on particularly this spot when I'm now standing, as if the echoes of ancient voices still reverberated in the the air around. And uh, therefore, a few, well, and assuming bricks overgrown with weed, can still call forth a wave of strong emotions, you know, much sometimes much more strong than when it's well, it's a proper proper um, well monument um, with um, ca- properly captioned. Mm, so okay. yeah, I think this is where where this book comes from. So I did not know this about you. So you are a poet at heart. Uh, yeah, because your writings are very analytical and documented and so forth. But OK, so there's a different person. here. Yeah, there is a fire under the surface. Yes, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Hold on to that. Um, so why did you feel that this guidebook had to be written? How, how does it differ from other uh, you know, books taking visitors through the monuments of Istanbul? How does it differ? Uh you know, uh, we have lots of uh, guidebooks, say, uh, Rome of the Caesars. Yeah, mm. it's pretty normal to, to come across such a guidebook in, in a way while you're in Italy. Or Jerusalem of Jesus. It's also, well, not uncommon. Or London of Shakespeare. Yeah, it's pretty normal yeah. genre of t- tourist. Well, not, 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 of course, mainstream, but pretty, pretty widely known kind of literature. And no such books uh, about Constantinople exist. Mm, there, is, there are more or less two guidebooks more or less comparable to mine. One written by a Byzantinist, 
uh, Jan Kostinets from Czech Republic, um, uh, which is entitled Walking Through Byzantium, Great Palace Region, published in 2007. Um, and it's uh, famous for its, uh, you know, com computer reconstructions of, uh, mm. of monuments of Constantinople. And the other um, Spanish one uh, by some Aguada Velasquez, uh, also published in 2007 in Spanish, but he's a, um, you know, he's an enthusiastic amateur. He's a photographer. So that's why it's a little bit amateurish. Otherwise, there are no no guys like this. And I think it it's worthwhile while having it if you go to, to Istanbul interested in its past. Yes, um, actually, I have the Spanish book. I, I saw it in a bookshop in Madrid and picked it up, um, which I regretted because it, it's very heavy. <laughs> It's yeah, it's so it, I had to put it uh, down. Um, but and, it's, uh, it's no, it's beautifully illustrated, and yes. that's, that's why it's so heavy. Yeah, yes, I think I had to carry it with me on the as a carry on, as a separate carry on, because it putting it in the suitcase put me over the limit. <laughs> anyway, yes, no, it, it has wonderful maps and illustrations and so on. Um, but you're right, there isn't a targeted guidebook for you know, here's if you're interested in. Byzantine Constantinople, here's what you focus on and follow this route and, and look for these things. So you're exactly right. And thank you for doing this. Um, I, I would have really used this a few years ago when I, I was uh, doing some study abroad groups in, uh, in Istanbul. Uh, so we, let's look at the sort of Byzantine antecedents for your project. Are there Byzantine guidebooks to the city? <laughs> well, the tradition of recounting tales connected to historical monuments when visiting those monuments is one that goes back to antiquity. It was Lucian who, who satirizes such, such guides. So this practice had transformed itself uh, into its own literary genre in Constantinople as well. Uh, in mid-Byzantine times. Judging from the recurrence of certain stories and anecdotes found first in Greek sources and then repeated in the accounts of medieval um, uh, well, uh, texts written in Latin, Arabic, Slavic, Armenian. Um, well, tour guides in Constantinople never lacked the for, for work. And it's very understandable because Mm, well, uh, pilgrims who, who were flooding Constantinople, mm, they did not walk around this megapolis alone. According to the great metaphor used by Stephen of Novgorod, a uh, Rus pilgrim, um, entering Constantinople is like entering a great forest. It's impossible to get around without a good guide. Um, so mm, indeed, they were accompanied by, by, by tour guides. And this, uh, these pilgrims were, no, well, huge numbers of them. Uh, we have dozens of reports by, by pilgrims. And recently I even made a, an, an article um, reconstructing the, well, tourist guide's narrative behind the report by Anthony of Novgorod of the year 1200. I uh, delivered a lecture at Koch University in November about this. And I must say that, um, well, in reconstructing the figure of the guide behind Anthony's back, I rely 
on my personal experience, because for many years I was teaching a university seminar Constantinople. So no less, not less than six times I took groups of my students there and I had great empathy with Anthony's guide playing the role <laughs> of guide myself. Of course, the guide had to infuse awe before sanctuaries, but also he has to entertain, uh, well, pilgrims. He, he, retol- he retells anecdotes. Yeah, he have to he has to engage listeners by putting questions and asking them to guess the right answer. Uh, he must uh, they must hear captivating stories, and uh, there is must be some some human touches, uh, some some impressive figures, and so on. So. Yeah, I, of course, this this literature, but it was not, of, of course, it was not um, it was not perceived as a high literary genre, but as a, but as a practical guide for 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 for, for tourist guides, I, I'm sure it existed. Sure, and even their their Greek texts that collect some of these legends about different sites, and you use them very well and strategically uh, in your guidebook, and and you keep a distinction, you make a distinction always between you know. The, the more historical sources, but the legends also associated with the monuments. And I've sometimes thought about these tour guides. And there was a time when I suspected that the text that's called the narrative for the building of Hagia Sophia was constructed largely for that purpose, like so that people who were giving tours in Constantinople could tell stories about different parts of the monument as they went around it. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. And, and I suspected also that they might have been the eunuchs uh, in the associated with the Hagia Sophia uh, uh, church, you know, the, on the staff. But anyway, I'm just making that up. Um, so who do you intend as the readers or users of your book? Uh, or put differently, how is it organized? Uh, well, it's a highly specialized guidebook, but nonetheless, it's exactly that, a, a guidebook. And it provides specific routes to specific historical sites. The book is accompanied by numerous numerous maps and architectural plans. And well, I described uh, everything known and not noteworthy about them. Um, but um, this guidebook, of course, is devoted exclusively to Byzantine Constantinople. So um, it has nothing to do with, with uh, Ottoman monuments, some of which are also very old. And it, it tells nothing about uh, even modern Greek churches if mm-hmm. the, there are no proofs that they have some uh, Byzantine old pedigree. Um, I, and it, it can be used as a guy, as a proper guidebook, but it, I think it can also be used as a just reading book for, for, for anybody interested or curious about, about Byzantine Constantinople, even, even just sitting, sitting at home. Uh, I, I, well, at least I tried to, to make it, make it a good reading. Uh, yes, I read it through that way, and I actually made a lot of notes in the beginning. <laughs> Things I'm going to use not for walking through Istanbul, just they were very interesting. Um, and uh, even some images that, um, is, uh, when you were talking about the Chora and you had a number of images from inside, I was struck by the one that is the, um, the, the registration of the Holy Family, you know, when they're in front of the okay. official, and you talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
I, that's, that's such a wonderful image for like encapsulating so much about Byzantium. Like absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's my yeah. beloved, beloved picture. Yeah, I, I like it so much. <laughs> yeah, it's you've got the bureaucracy and the Holy Family and the political authority, and it, they're all in this one frame. And anyway, mm -hmm. and um, uh, did you did you notice that the governor sitting? is of the same size as mm. the theatocus standing. Yeah. So in a sort, governor is much more important figure on this mosaic. Yes, yes. And you talk about the gestures that they're mm. making from left to right. And anyway, it, it's great stuff. Um, so and I mentioned the Hora. Um, so if our listeners, if they haven't visited Istanbul and they're thinking about the Byzantine monuments, they likely know at least two of them, which is Hagia Sophia and Hora. And so let's entice them to see more and sort of get them both into the guidebook and the city. So apart from those two famous monuments, um, what other, what three others would you recommend uh, to visitors as sort of must-see places and why? Uh, well, of course, it's hard to choose because there there are around 100, 100 Byzantine monuments. N not many, of course, for such a huge city. But yeah. anyway, so out of out of dozens places of note, I would single out first uh, Sergius and Vakas Church. Mm. It's, uh, it can be easily reached. It's just near the Hippodrome and the the, the very heart of the historical. Uh, peninsula. Mm, I like this small church very much. It's now called Kuchuk Hagia Sophia, which means small Hagia Sophia, but in fact, it does not look like it. It's quite a different architecture. And I would say um, very, very avant-garde architecture by sixth century standards. Mm, uh, you can, in, when, when, while inside, you can see the transition from the first to the second floor as a transition from the architecture of antiquity to that of early Byzantium. But because while below the architraves, friezes and cornices directly atop of the col columns call to mind the ancient world, but above each mm. pair of columns is topped by an arch like in Hagia Sophia. And there, in general, altogether, the building leaves the impression of flawless harmony and absolute undescribable perfection. So I uh, uh, highly recommend anybody who who, go, who comes to, to Istanbul to, to visit this wonderful church, which now, although it serves uh, as a mosque, uh, so you have to adjust to, to the time of namaz. But in this particular case, the, the building is not, is probably not locked uh, otherwise as well. So you can come anytime there. And uh, since it's not, uh, it's not a museum, you, it's open for, for visitors more or less all the day, all day long. And it's also sort of advantage. The second, second monument I would choose, well, probably the Golden Gate. Oh. The, the gigantic arc, mm. ar uh, arch with three curved spans, um, it, it was crowned by a sculptural composition of Emperor Theodosius, um, uh, the rays of a chariot drawn by elephants. Yes. So, and you, you may, one, it's, it was closed for many years, this, this place, Yedikule, it's now called, Seven Towers. 
in Turkish. So it was used. It, it was it was used as a well as a museum of Yedikule of the well Ottoman um, monument, but well the Golden Gate is part of it. Mm, it but now it's now open again. It's one of the good news about, uh, about recent developments in Istanbul. So it was closed, but now it's opened. Mm, and so a tourist can, um, can ascend the, the, uh, on top uh, to, to the place where the chariot with elephants was. And from this high vantage, the visitor can see a grand panorama of the Sea of Marmara and the great Theodosian wall extending to the north and if I'm not mistaken, Lord Byron once said that this is the most magnificent view he ever saw in his life. So, um, and a visitor can walk through the side arches of the uh, of the gate um, per se. And um, this arch was built for the ages. Uh, its slabs fit so closely together that not even a blade of a razor could be fit between them. And this edifice is absolutely huge. It's made of completely of marble, more than 65 meters wide and almost 20 meters tall. Yeah. So it's 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 undescribable might. That's what I can say. It's yeah. absolutely undescribable might. So and the the third third monument would be um, uh, the Church of Pamakaristos. Uh, today's Fetiye um, Jami Mosque. It's a little bit complicated because Pamakaristas, together with Hora, was officially converted, reconverted to a mosque, to the status of a mosque. Uh, but whereas um, Hora was locked absolutely since this very moment, it's this proclamation. Nobody knows what's inside, what's going on inside. With Pamakaristas, this was an, another story, also very tricky. It's sometimes open and sometimes closed. So the, the main building is a functioning mosque, but what we are interested in um, Byzantium-wise is a paraclesion, so a, a side chapel, which served as a museum. So now officially it's back, it's a mosque back, but still it somehow functions, or from time to time it functions as a, as a museum. It's, uh, well, it re reveals the ambiguity of the recent cultural um, politics in, in Istanbul. And uh, this fetier, uh, this paraclesion uh, of Pamakaristas is absolutely undescribably beautiful, both out from outside and inside. The mosaics inside are probably the best mosaics of the 14th century in, in Constantinople or probably in Byzantium uh, at all. And <clears throat> to my taste, their quality is even higher than the quality of uh, horror mosaics, which are so... Uh, so famous. Uh, Fetiye is much less famous, but it definitely deserves a visit. So this would be three, well, main stars on my list. Those are excellent choices, and they are all sort of densely associated with historical events and historical people that we know about from many texts, and you, you talk about some of them in, in the guidebook. Um, and I've had a similar experience on top of the Golden Gate. It's a magnificent view up there. Absolutely. Uh, and and yeah, fortunately, I, I took photos of my daughter who was, he came onto the trip for a few days and 
uh, was about eight years ago now. And yeah, you know, there's really magnificent site. And the, the Pamakaristos church is, uh, I've studied it because of Tarhanyotis, who's one of these noblemen of the 14th century mm -hmm. who was buried there. Um, so anyway, yeah, no, th these are very important monuments. Now, these are also, um, uh, you know, unmistakable features of the landscape. They are um, sort of discrete monuments that have received studies. But in your book, you explore the city, all of the nooks and crannies and, you know, the doors and corners, and you go poking around. And there's some of the, some of these things are not obvious on the landscape, and they're not that well known. Some people might not even know where they are. So what are some of the strangest or least likely uses of Byzantine buildings that you've come across? <laughs> yes, this is what I'm mostly proud of in my book, because, yes, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm sure I enumerated all all such such places in Istanbul, and there are many uh, well unorthodox uses of for Byzantine monuments there. So um, the most the most common one is just uh, is just storage. Yeah, for example, uh, the famous well not so famous but more or less known uh, place, uh, probably erroneously um, erroneously labeled. The Palace of Votiniatis, mm -hmm. the Palace of, of Votiniatis. So it's overground, uh, very impressive construction. Um, we probably were, can be sure that it's not a palace, but anyway, it's very impressive mid-Byzantine structure. It's used. It's uh, it's used as storage for refreshment drinks. Mm, the same can be said about many other places. For example, the crypt of the one of the most famous churches in Constantinople, Halkopratia, of which nothing more, no, practically nothing is left. But um, its crypt uh, is more or less, more or less intact. It's it's situated in the basement of a hotel nearby. I, I, well, I evade naming the hotel, not, not to be blamed of product placement. But anyway, um, so this basement is also, this crypt is also um, used um, as a storage. Um, very impressive overground cisterns of uh, Pandakrater Monastery are simply in private property. And they stay forgotten and empty. Mm. Um, so you can just knock on the door of the owner of the house nearby and ask for permission to enter. And probably he will, uh, he will let you in. It's very impressive because your, this, this Byzantine structure is uh, exclusively, exclusively for you. It's, it's not for tourists. It's not for storage. It's for you. And it's also sort of very, very impressive. But the most, well, there are obvious cases of military usage. Yeah, for example, the Manganis Palace, yeah, and monastery, which is near Bosphorus. And, well, it's more or less near the, the Sultan's Palace, yes, the huge, the main museum of, of Istanbul. And still, it's a military use, and tourists may not enter this area, which is. I, I've never been there, but of course it, uh, it must be very impressive. But the most interesting place is probably the oldest, oldest Christian church in Europe. 
I dare say. It's Martyrium of Carpus and Papyrus, uh, which was which, which for many decades served as a metalwork. It was very easy to enter, but it was very dark. You had to, to bring your own light with you. Now it was repurposed and became a nightclub. Um, and so you can enter now it it properly lit. Um, you can, it's a very weird architecture, very interesting, extremely interesting. But uh, the most impressive is that um, the uh, Byzantine fresco is exactly over the head of the bartender. So there is a bartender and a Byzantine inscription with a, um, a, a quote from the from from the from mm. Old Testament. So yeah, there are many 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 very weird places in in Istanbul. Yes, from your guidebook, I was trying to imagine you <laughs> trying to get access to these places or creeping into them or you know <laughs> anyway visiting nightclubs, but for very different purposes than one usually does. Um, so I'm sure you felt this too. I feel it uh, often in historical places where sometimes I will have an overwhelming feeling of sort of the presence of history in a specific place. And I get goosebumps just imagining like all of the people, you know, whose lives I know and have studied were right there. And like, I imagine our historical paths kind of intersecting. Anyway, I just get a really strong sense of that sometimes. Um, so in what place do you most feel this kind of sense of history being present, you know, alongside you? Well, in this respect, I think Hagia Sophia is uncomparable, well, of course, um, well over all other places, yeah. because every inch of its walls um, was adorned with icons, each of its own history, and every slab of its pavement endowed with a special ceremonial role well, precisely described by Constantine Perfergenitus and in his schizophrenically, you know, book on ceremonies. Um, and uh, indeed, I tell, I, I dedicated 45, 45 pages of my guidebook mm -hmm. to, uh, exclusively to, to Hagia Sophia. It deserves it because, well, well, two, two, two small small examples, uh, on the eastern wall of the South Gallery, we encounter a fairly dilapidated door, which mm -hmm. is now mar marked with number 51 for, for some reasons. I don't know who counted them. So it does not lead anywhere now, but once it served as the entrance to the gallery that allowed the imperial court to come directly from the palace to the church without passing through the city. So many, many uh, very meaningful and important events took place at this very threshold. For example, in 1183, during the coronation of Isaac Angelus, the dethroned emperor Andronicus Comnenus used this entrance when he decided to strive Isaac in the heart um, with his bow. But that uh, at this very moment, the string snapped, uh, dealing him a stunning blow, according to the legend. So we we can visualize exactly where Andronicus stood, aiming at, at Isaac. Or um, in the southern uh, southeast column of the gallery, it was the home of Hagia Sophia's guardian angel. And we also know for sure that he was living 
inside this exact pillar. Because there is a very famous legend that one day during the construction of the church, all the workers went to have lunch, leaving behind only a small boy. And this boy was visited by a radiant creature. He initially thought to be one of the court eunuchs. And he asked the boy why work had stopped and then told him to go find the, the crew and urge them to work without interruption. And the boy said that he had been told to keep watch over the, everyone's tools and needed to stay, but the visitor promised to keep watch himself until the boy returns. And when the boy carried his message to the absent workers, Justinian was with them, and, and the emperor quickly tallied up that this eunuch uh, was, an, in fact, an angel, and uh, he... Um, so he immediately sent the boy permanently to Rome so that the angel would guard the new church forever. And every resident, resident of Constantinople knew exactly where the angel was hiding. The medieval tale, which you just mentioned, leaves no room for doubt that he was uh, to the right side of the pillar from which the arch rises to the dome. So according to uh, Christian um, well, Nestor, Nestor uh, Christian serving in the Ottoman army, one night before the final assault on Constantinople in 1433, the angel left his post after 800 years mm -hmm. and ascended as a flaming pillar into the sky. So uh, this, this uh, edifice is imbued with such stories, uh, every, literally every inch of it. So in this respect, uh, well, there is no other, I would say there is no other building in, in Europe like this. Well, uh, two or three probably we can think of, but otherwise it's, it's absolutely, absolutely filled with, with history. You're right. I mean, any corner or pillar of, of that building that we want to talk about, we can find some story that's connected yeah. to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's what I love about your guidebook, too, is that it's not just an architectural description of the monuments, but you, you talk about how they were designed to be used and, and how they eventually came to be used, which is often very different from the way they were designed. Um, and so there's this kind of interplay between the monuments and the history. And I wanted to ask you about that uh, because there's a lot of Byzantine monuments that we study apart from the events and people that interacted with them and, and reverse that, that historians often talk about events taking place without sort of thinking about the kind of architectural background that they're taking place in. Uh, so is there an event or kind of event in Byzantine life that you think we would understand much better if we thought you know, about it more closely in relation to its built environment rather than just kind of abstractly as a narrative? Well, there are many, many such instances. Uh, one, one example would be uh, the so-called uh, prison of Animas. Well, it's not prison, in fact, and it's not of Animas. It's part of the, of the palace of Laherna mm. uh, and probably, probably prison occupied this tiny fraction of this huge huge building but uh, uh the story told by psalos um uh, always uh, well seemed enigmatic to me until i saw the actual place so when psalos talks about the um, the rebellion of leo Tarnikios in 1047 mm. 
he describes how he approached the, the walls of the city um, and wanted to overthrow Constantine uh, Monomachos. And Psalos says that um, the emperor uh, decided to show himself to the, to, to the rebel and so ordered his, his throne to be put um, on the protruding side of the palace. And I wondered how how the rebel could see him if he was standing in, in, in front of the city wall. How could he see the emperor sitting um, in, in his palace? And when I approached the, the, the actual spot, I realized right away that this is the place where the, the palace of Flaherna merges with the wall, physically merges. So ah. the, the, the wall of the... Uh, of the palace becomes the, the city wall. And it's very, very, you know, very, you can very vividly visualize how he was sitting and the, the rebel was uh, addressing him from below. And uh, as, as the, the Psalos uh, describes to us, other rebels, uh, a group uh, given to public clowning and vulgarity, dismounted from the horses uh, in the view of the emperor, made a circle and began to dance and to perform comic scenes about the emperor and stomping their feet to the beat of their song and hopping about. Um, and all this is very, very, it's very easily, easily, <laughs> well, visualiz visualizing when you're standing in front of this place of the of the black hair the wall but there are many other other places as well like this yes this is like uh byzantine civil war the musical <laughs> yeah. yes um yes um it's so fascinating that you mentioned that episode because that's a scene in Tzalos that i have read many many times and i realize now that i have a very vague and generic image of where the emperor was sitting and how this place how this was taking place mm -hmm. and now that i know this i will go and next time i'm there i will seek out this place because i want to have a very specific um an accurate picture of where this was taking place didn't they also shoot at the emperor with like a catapult or something yes absolutely yes uh-huh yeah uh-huh uh, yeah, yeah i, I have uh -huh. to see that uh -huh. um, and the uh, the arrow wounded one of the servants yeah. uh, nearby. Mm -hmm. um, so your book is organized apart from specific monuments like Hagia Sophia, which gets a chapter. Otherwise, they're like roots. So you group the monuments um, according to uh, like proximity or along a, a particular route. Now, um, some of these roots are what we would say like off the beaten path they're not the most well known um so which is the one that you would send which is like the most underrated you found that had received the less attention like what part of the city is like more forgotten well it would be probably northwest northwest uh, in many senses first of all it's not easy to reach from the well uh, the tip of historical peninsula because the transportations are not so so mm. easy. Mm, uh, probably they, they are going to open a tram line along the Golden Horn, then it will be much easier. All right. um, yeah. But now you have to, to probably sail in a boat uh, mm. up, up the Golden Horn. Um, so Blacherna, uh, north northwest of the city, is littered with Byzantine monuments, especially because 
um, this was the place uh, which became the, the center of the city in its last latest phase of phase of history because the the imperial palace moved the, the emperors moved from the big palace from the great palace to Vlaherna palace and of course the the business life also moved moved to to, to northwest so there are around 30 uh, byzantine monument byzantine spots or monuments or ruins in Vlaherna and many of them are not very well not very well known for example, well, extremely, extremely beautiful um, uh, church of St. John in Trullo um, uh, is very, very poorly known and uh, 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 not, re not, not studied properly by, by scholars. Um, or the so-called um, Bogdan Sarai, uh, which is now uh, a storage for... Uh, old um, car tires, um, but it used to be probably a, a, a funerary chapel of a church and many, many other places. So Northwestern is very promis promising area. And I believe someday the great palace of Vlaherna was, will be properly excavated because it's sticking, yeah. sticking from, the, from the ground here and there in many places yeah. as if as if this place, uh, this palace is uh, trying to crawl out from, from under from under the earth, and uh, I'm sure it's very easy, and it will be it will be done someday. So yes, Flaherna probably the most underrated part of, of the Byzantine city. Yeah, I hope it's excavated. The first time I went there was I think in '94, and I didn't have obviously a proper guide or anything like that. And when I got to that part of the city, I, I was just lost. I, I, I was just, just a jumble of architectural thing. Like I have no idea what's going on here. Uh, so yes, that, that definitely needs some clearing up um, and, and yeah, much more attention. Um, so now that you've established again, that you're a poet, <laughs> <laughs> let's you. talk about I'm some not, actual. I'm not fishing for compliments. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, okay. Um, no, so I was just reading uh, Horner's book on Byzantine poetry earlier today. Um, okay, so let's talk about some actual poems. So many of the monuments and artifacts that you describe had or still have accompanying poems, which Byzantines call epigrams, and you helpfully translate these uh, for the readers. So if they go to the place and there was an accompanying epigram, you they can read it in your book. So is there one of these that's a favorite of yours? Um, maybe because either for its poetic qualities or because what it adds to the monument just by being there as a text that accompanies it? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, uh, many of them are very meaningful and uh, I'm trying my best to explain why they're so meaningful to the reader. Uh, for example, the, um, the verse inscription from Sergius and Vacchus uh, mentions uh, mm. Justinian as a sleepless emperor. So mm -hmm. probably he, he was boastful of his uh, well ability not to sleep much, mm. and uh, but we know from Procopius that it was this was exactly exactly Procopius was blaming Justinian for for his sleeplessness. Um, uh, yeah, it's well it adds vividness to to the well intellectual life of the uh, of the spirit. But the but the most beloved one by me is um, the inscription from a frieze um, which is now in the archaeological museum 
which says, uh, for you alone uh, have built, uh, for you alone, I think, have built innumerable temples throughout the whole the whole earth. So these are the, the lines from the epigram um, to uh, the church of St. Polyuctus erected by Anisha Juliana in the, uh, the beginning of the sixth century. And uh, you know the story in 1965, they were uh, digging a pit uh, in Sarachane district of Istanbul, and they found this small piece of frieze with this inscription, very artfully made. Um, and um, uh, Mango and Shevchenko right away understood that uh, this was the famous epigram, the, the, the part of the famous epigram. So why is it so uh, important? Because the, the woman, who sponsored the building of Polyuctus, this Anissa Juliana was a very famous, famous person. She traced her family to the emperor Theodosius I, and he, she had three emperors among her ancestors. And uh, St. Gregory of Tours relates that when Justinian came to power, um, he cast an envy, in envious eye upon Anissa's uh, immense wealth and hinted to her that it would be a nice idea to donate it to the state treasury. But in response, she asked for some time to consolidate it and receiving grace period, immediately spent all her entire fortune on the building of St. Polyuctus. And um, uh, when Justinian approached her again, Anisha proposed to pray together in the newly built church. And the emperor realized that he had been tricked. And of course, this is a legend uh, because the church was built for many years and Justinian certainly knew about it. But still, it's very telling that this form of the story made it all the way to the distant France, to Tours. Apparently, Anisha's church did occasion jealousy on the part of Justinian. And this epigram is, in, in fact, an insult to him. So we can somehow somehow reconstruct his feelings and his answer to to the pesky old woman was was Hagia Sophia so Hagia Sophia was a, a source of response not to King Solomon as it's told in the in the legend of uh, building of this church but in fact to the pesky old uh, Anisha Juliana I like this I like this so piece of inscription very much Yes, isn't it amazing that we have the text of the inscription in manuscripts because it was preserved by collectors of epigrams later on and all of the stories about these churches and the relations among, you know, these aristocrats and emperors and so on. And then we find the actual inscribed inscription in situ. I mean, I just think that this is just a remarkable Absolutely, yes. I'm, I'm always thrilled when, when these things happen. Yes, this coincidence. Yeah, this yeah, proves yeah. that history history indeed existed. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes we do doubt it, yes. Um, so which monument is currently closed to the public, but that of all the monuments that are closed, this is the one that you would choose to open if you could? 
in my in my guidebook in my guidebook i underlined the the names of uh, closed monuments saying mm. that we have to well take some measures in some uh, in some cases it's easy for example you have to address the uh, the imam of a certain mosque it normally works in other cases you have to uh, procure the permission of um, of a certain um, of a certain organization it also happens from time to time for example the huge huge system of uh, under the under the uh, um, Pandakrater monastery it's theoretically uh, can be can be entered but it takes some effort but in some cases it's impossible uh, when a monument is a sort of military zone and this applies 100 percent to the only church which is absolutely intact and which I never saw. This is the church of Panagia Kamariotisa on Heibeliada uh, Island uh, among the Princess Islands, so mm-hmm. nearby Istanbul. Mm, so it, <clears throat> it's a very interesting uh, from the architectural point of view. It's a tetraconch um, uh, church, a uh, communion period and it's interested in in the sense it uses uh, uh, squinches instead of uh, um, uh, instead of pendentives so it's very interestingly built but i never saw it because unfortunately it is situated on the grounds of a naval academy uh, and outside visitors are never never admitted it and for the last time it's it was seen by a specialist like 70 years ago right right my choice would probably be the Pandokrator monastery as a whole, just as the, you know, the floor and the, the Komnenian tombs and all of these things that I think have never been properly studied. Um, and the last, uh, the last developments were very unfortunate with, uh, with Pandokrator, unfortunately, because uh, it was, well, it was refurbished uh, recently, but it was refurbished in the, well, Ottoman, not Byzantine sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For, for example, the carpets were, were nailed to the to the pavement, yes. whereas beforehand yeah. you could somehow open open the actual communion uh, pavement with mosaics. Um, non, well, officially not anymore, and there are other instances like this. Yes, it's very sad. So along the same lines, but it's slightly different. Which monument has been completely lost that you would bring back? If if you could pick one from the mists of history that is just lost to us forever, which one would you like to have back? Uh, well, uh, first, uh, what first comes to mind is, of course, uh, Holy Apostles, uh, well, the second build, biggest right, church yes. of Constantinople. But, but on the other hand, uh, you cannot but admit that uh, we have many depictions. At least we have some depictions of it, uh, even of its interior. Uh, there are there are well uh, I- I- illuminations in 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 different manuscripts which depicts the interior of the of the holy apostles, and we have very very detailed descriptions of Mesaritis. So we some or, or we can go to Venice and look at, at San Marco, which is also a, a sort of copy of Holy Apostles. So therefore, my choice, if it will be one one monument, it would be Theotokos Perivleptos, um, the, mm. the monastery, the church erected um, erected in the 11th century, uh, which was completely demolished. There are 
three pieces of ruins, which I describe how to, to reach from three different directions, but they make uh, make no impression at all. It's co- completely sentimental that well to know that these bricks are belonged belong to to Perivleptos. Perivleptos uh, is now the Armenian church uh, Surp Kevork, uh, but the new one. And it's heavily guarded because it, there is an Armenian school, and for obvious reasons, there mm. are very, very severe measures measures of uh, well guarding this place. Um, you can never enter the the substructures and so on. But uh, from what we know from all the descriptions, beginning with ironic ironic description by Psalos and yes. uh, to the to the Rus, Rus pilgrims and to the crusaders by the way who were looting it uh, it, it it's obvious that it was the well, the, the place of note and indescribably beautiful beautiful church um, i i if i were a magician i would yeah i would bring to life this this building so there is hope that you know, more sites will be discovered in the future. Uh, I don't think anyone was expecting, for example, that the harbor excavations, well, that there would be harbor excavations at all. It just became, uh-huh. you know, they came about through a, a different project. Um, is there hope for any particular monument that you think might still be excavated or found somewhere or, or you know, just some new discovery that will add to our knowledge in a, in a significant way, do you think? Uh, well, they sh- they open some monuments every day while well on on construction works just mm. uh, just uh, digging pits for for new for, for new buildings. They invariably find something. The other uh, other story is that they normally cover it up immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, um, uh, n- n- not to well be pressed pressured to prolong the time of of. Of, of exploration by the archaeologists, but nevertheless, so there are places where they uh, the, the archaeologi- archaeologists are allowed to 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 dig to excavate for some time. For example, take uh, Haidar Pasha train station, uh, which is now well being excavated very properly and. Um, it's on the Asian side of the of the Bosphorus, so it's uh, it's uh, Halkedon, not Constantinople, properly speaking. But anyway, so they found. Unfortunately, they do not disclose what they found um, up to this day. But uh, well, occasional pictures taken, photos taken by different people, say that it's um, extremely, extremely um, interesting and promising site. It's on the on the eastern side, on the western side, um, a, a whole new, well, I don't district, uh, on the western western extremities of today's Istanbul. Um, they they call it more or less conventionally Bathonia, but uh, I doubt that Bathonia was a genuine name of the, uh, of the neighborhood. Anyway, it's on the northeastern shore of the uh, of the um, lake Kuchukchikmije, uh, so uh, and they found archaeologists found a huge uh, neighborhood with uh, with uh, do- uh, well the shipyards, docks, um, uh, the hospital with uh, with uh, uh, pharmacy uh, and even with some drugs 
uh, in Amphora um, intact, um, and uh, churches and living quarters. And there are some chances that, in fact, this was the uh, neighborhood named St. Mamas. This was St. Mamas, where the Rus uh, merchants coming from to Tsargrad, to, from, from Rus, were uh, being stationed, not as it was normally assumed, not St. Mamas on the, on the Bosphorus, because on the Bosphorus, it's unthinkable that the a whole fleet would be, would be standing on anchor for, for well, half a year. The Bosphorus is not like this. It will not. It would not allow. It will not allow anything to stand on on, on anchor for a long time. So probably this was Kuchukchikmetje, this lake, which was in fact the harbor where the Rus merchants lived. And I just a couple of weeks ago I was shown around by by archaeologists excavating there, and these remains are really remarkable, un unbelievably remarkable. So I'm I'm sure many other places will be will be uh, will be excavated in the in the near future for the obvious reason that um, the mayor of Istanbul, Ikrem Imamoglu, uh, is making an emphasis that Byzantine history is our history, our city's history, and we should not uh, we should not somehow uh, proclaim it. Uh, a bet noir of of the history of Istanbul, and due to due to the help from the from the mayor's office, uh, Turkish mm. archaeologists began well began re-excavating, for example, Bukuleon, yeah, the, ah. which was for the last time um, uh, well excavated by the by the French occupying forces <laughs> one hundred years ago. Uh, now they are. Mm returned to this place and they already found many very interesting many very interesting things beginning with the period when uh, the, the the this palace was built and ending with the uh, grim grim history of its afterlife because for just recently they found many skeletons there and I assume these are the skeletons of the uh, political prisoners, uh, put there by John Apokafkas in the 14th century. Um, uh, so it, it's a highly interesting. So, or uh, take the other place, the Church of Euphemia near the Hippodrome. Uh, everybody knew that there are frescoes, well, late Byzantine frescoes, uh, but it was the part of the Minister of the Interior. That's why they were inaccessible. But now they are preparing and they will soon open it as a museum. They just moved the fence, uh, well, several meters and yes. opened open it for, for, for the public. So many, many other places, um, of course, can be uh, can be still still opened. Or, or we can we can probably hope that some of them will not be demolished further any further, like yeah. studios, which is now completely falling apart. Uh, the Church of yeah. Studios, um, which is uh, sadly uh, put into 
uh, into the realm of uh, their religious ministry from the Ministry of Culture. Mm. So it's uh, once again, it's it's a sad ruin. You you will uh, nobody will ever pray there. So it's a purely symb- symbolic step, of course. Uh, and, but uh, it's uh, of course it's very it's extremely deplorable. I would say so. Yeah, I mean Istanbul is a place where anywhere you dig, you will probably soon be excavating. Um, or where anything can be can in theory be turned into a museum. I mean, the whole the whole place is like that, um, and and it is a very heavy burden to maintain all of you know these these monuments. I mean, it's and expensive. So let let's hope that um, that um, you know preserving Byzantine Constantinople is not only you know taken on as a part of the history of modern Turkey, but also is a profitable thing to do. Uh, And and with your book, you know, it will be all the more accessible. Uh, So, you know, thank you for writing it. And and, uh, thank you for coming on to the podcast as well. So we're almost out of time. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share from your search for Constantinople? (laughs) Well, uh, I would advise, I would advise people to 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 come to Istanbul with my books and with uh, my book in hand enhance as soon as possible because the city is going away well my general impression from my well 25 years of 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 coming to istanbul that constantinople is going away slowly but surely Mm -hmm. Uh, there are many many things which are no more uh, for example, the, the 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 Golden Gate. There used to be a wonderful uh, relief with an eagle, with an eagle uh, yes. in the in the wall, and yes. it disappeared, and oh, no. nobody knows where it is. Um, and there are many such things. So, um, and other monuments are disfigured. I would say, like Tekfur Saray, which uh, on uh, it's a 14th century palace. And uh, now on its wall, they hung an elevator, um, which completely ruined all the impression from the monument. So such things also happen all the time. And so in this respect, I say that gradually the, the city of old is, is leaving us. And for, so come as soon as you can. Yes, that reminds me of the opening of Herodotus, the, the oblivion caused by time. Um, and uh, so, you know, we have to preserve it every 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 so often. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Sergei. This was wonderful. It was a pleasure to speak with you again. And thank you for writing this book. Thank you. Bye.